a banger this song was when it was released back at the start of the millennium and continues to be so 22 years later. The track propelled today's guest to multi-platinum stardom, making her one of the top-selling international female singers of the noughties with more than 30 million record sales. And she's here with me now, so please welcome to talk about how her life unfolded after that thing she did, Anastasia. Anastasia, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you as well. Well, I guess it's good morning because you're in Florida, is it? Yes, I am in Florida. I mean, you know, morning sometimes when you have a dog these days, it's not rock star morning anymore. (laughs) It's actually, they are like, um, I need to go to the bathroom at 7 a.m. And my time is usually like 12. So I'm like, "Uh, uh." But yes, it is my morning and it is your afternoon. Well, before we get going properly, um, I just wanted to get something out of the way first, because as a Genevieve, I am well used to people butchering my name, both in spelling and saying it. Um, I get Guinevere, Jean Vive, Geraldine, randomly. I also get French variations, Genevieve, Genevieve, and I always correct people because it's my name. So I find it really interesting that the majority of people outside the US, and especially here in England, have been saying your name wrong for the past 22 years. Oh yeah, completely. Saying Anastasia and not Anastasia. 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 How has this travesty been allowed to continue? You know, I'm, because I'm not so adamant, I think, to, because it takes away from I don't want to correct them because all of a sudden then the wall's up, like I've made a judgment to them and whatever we're doing and whether it's an interview or it's a fan, it kind of is almost a snub. So I don't do it because they didn't say, are you Mariah? So I'm actually like, they kind of have a ballpark of where I'm at. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, I feel like if you can pronounce Jean-Paul Gaultier, you can pronounce Anastasia, right? It's the same You principle. can pronounce it, but I think sometimes it's just if if the news has been saying it in certain ways, I think people just go to what they hear. And I guess I d- never really, I could have been very adamant about the news keeping that the same, but it, you can't keep uh, control of, of every country. <laughs> so, you know. Anastasia, like in Italy, they're just like, they give me like seven more A's in my name. So it's okay. It sounds great. (laughs) I mean, you're in good company because Rihanna's been trying to tell everyone for over a decade that people are pronouncing her name wrong and it hasn't sunk in yet. No, no. (laughs) What is it? (laughs) It's Rihanna, but Americans say Rihanna, but it's Rihanna. No, you guys say Rihanna. I say Rihanna. No, we say Rihanna in England. Oh, interesting. I don't know who's it. Rihanna, Rihanna, Rihanna. Oh, I probably am saying Rihanna. I don't know what I'm saying, but Barbara Streisand, <laughs> same thing. Yes. Streisand, Streisand. Yeah. It's, it happens to the best of us. And there you go. You're in good company. There's a, a Gal Gadot, Wonder Woman. People think it's Gal Gadot or Gal Gadot. She's oh, see, there, there's, I might have tried to make it sound cooler too. <laughs> Gal Gadot. <laughs> It's a, it's a, it's a troubled life we lead. It's a troubled life we lead. Exactly, girl. (laughs) There are high class problems in our world with our fancy names. Oh dear. Okay. Let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. Okay.
Uh, so starting at the beginning, you had a long old slog before you had your break. You'd spent years doing backing vocals for the likes of Paula Abdul, Jamie Foxx. You were in a group with Michelle Visage. You were a wedding singer for a bit and even sang at Steven Spielberg's wedding. Yes. But is it true that you sang at Arnold Schwarzenegger's birthday party? Yes. you to sing the same En Vogue song seven times. Oh, yes. He loved, I think it's what a man or whatever, of course. And um, he didn't mind if it was on repeat because, you know, you have your song. And you love it and it, it's your party song. So I never found it weird. I actually found it adorable that he was that cool that he would just sort of be like, you know, living for his song. And it's an En Vogue song of all things. It's not Metallica. So I actually loved that part of it. Um, but it is interesting to have that little history of that in my life and just always assuming that they were them and I was never going to be part of that echelon in my life that I was a performer of their songs or who you know not gonna make it type of artist I mean you struggled to get signed because you didn't really fit into a box for the music industry you were told that you weren't soulful enough for R&B you weren't pop enough right but the whole notion is just crazy to me because surely uniqueness should be a massive selling point and not be a carbon copy of other singers at the time um I agree with you, but in a record company throwing money at you, it's a risk. And so I do understand the financial risk they take when they want to step out of what's happening and making money in the industry that the risk is they have to really believe in the risk. And it's very possible that a lot of what they believe in doesn't happen. So it doesn't mean that people don't get that opportunity. And it doesn't also mean that when they do get the opportunity, they aren't talented. It just could just be the timing. It's sometimes these wonderful opportunities that we get in our lives as singers isn't because we're better than it's, it is this timing thing. It's, it's a talent thing. It's, what's happening in your life, you know, if you can stay there, if you can, you know, handle the strangeness. So I do believe this industry is, is kind of a little bit set up for failure, but if you're able to detour and ebb and flow and ride that very strange roller coaster, I think your career can sustain the highs and lows that it has. So you finally got your break after appearing on the MTV singing contest, The Cut, in 1998, which landed you your record deal. But even then, you had to start your career off in a, in a bit of a lie because the powers that be shaved five years off your age and made you 25, thinking at 30, you were too old to sell records. Did you feel like you were in a position where you couldn't argue it because they were in that position of power to give and take away? No, I, I actually, the, the reason why the age was shaved is because the MTV show that I was on had a cap for 30 and they were like, Oh my God, your voice. And you look 22. Let's just make you, I think it was like 23 or 24. So that was the age there. And Sony just kind of knew how old I was, but they were just like, okay, it's out there. So let's just go with it. And I, I didn't feel embarrassed about it. I actually, as a woman or whatever, I was like, I look young, you know, <laughs> It was kind of that thing that all women would say, even in our 20s, yes, card me. I'm old enough. You know, when you turn 21, you want to get like carded all the time. And then you want to get carded all the time when you turn 50. So <laughs> it kind of, it, it comes in both ways. 
<laughs> was it a relief though when you came clean to be able to say actually I'm not you know I think because I was just jumbling what my sisters and brothers dates of birth were and I would say age is a number I would try to go about it in a way and when I turned 40 I just felt like it's odd you know I I just I'd like to be 40 and I'd like to continue what I am and and so I, to be honest everyone believed that I was that young. It wasn't a hard sell. And I think they were more shocked that I was as old as I was. <laughs> they were like, oh my God. I mean, she really, she's, she could pass. And so your debut single, I'm Out of Love, was a massive hit. And I read a perfect description of it where it was intended to be a song that was kind of like, I will survive, but with a little more substance. And yeah. I thought, that's exactly it. Yeah. And it was the biggest selling song in Australia and New Zealand in 2000, fourth best selling song in Europe, top five in 10 countries. And it's played all the time here in England. And I remember in the first series of Pop Idol, Simon Cowell was saying he was fed up of hearing it because it was the most sung song by auditionees <laughs> who were usually murdering it. Um, <laughs> but during that time, did you have a sense of how big it was or was everything running no. at a million miles an hour? You didn't have time to process and only now with hindsight you can be like oh yeah that happened yeah I really did wish I had that third that third voice in my head able to look at what was happening what I'm feeling and then what's what's happening in real time um I was always in the next time and because it took me so long to actually have a career I think I was always waiting for it to end so in the first few years of my success, I really don't think I was able to understand what was truly going on in my journey. I couldn't absorb it. I, I always felt like it was going to end. And so unfortunately, was there like super excitement inside my soul that I had security? No. You know, I feel now in my life, I have security. I feel like now in my life, if I never put another single out, I have a job and it feels so nice to have a job. But when I was young, I felt like I was always trying to be relevant, but I never felt like I fit in as well because I dressed different than the magazines were. And I still looked different than what the world was claiming was the most beautiful thing in the world. So, and the aspiring glam to, I never fit in there. So I never really had that moment where I, what I'm doing, people are liking, I just sort of had to continue doing it because it's what I do and whether they were taking it and, and accepting it, the audience was not saying they didn't like my clothes. I mean, they did want me to take off my glasses numerous times. And I was like, but I can't see. And this is like, it's bad enough that you know, this industry is crazy, but I'd like to look into somebody's eyes, to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't want to like look like lost. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about the glasses then for a second, because that was, you know, one of the other reasons you said why you didn't get signed, because you didn't look like everyone else. Mm. And shock horror, you wore glasses. Uh, and as a fellow blind as a bat person, you're my hero for keeping them on, uh, by the way, and not succumbing <laughs> to the pressure to ditch them and wear contacts like I did. Um, I tried. I tried. It was a hard. It's just I was like, ah, eyes. But you succeeded in making glasses sexy. And uh, and as well as making glasses sexy, you were in a lot of crop tops, low, low slung trousers, very sexy image. 
Um, but I was really surprised watching old interviews of you where the amount of attention your boobs got. I mean, I saw one interview last night where Jonathan Ross was actually shaking your hand in the interview to congratulate you on them. I mean, that would never happen today. But how did that make you feel at the time? I knew that, put it this way, I had a very sizable situation up there for being as small as I was. And so I think that what I was, you know, in, in my choreography, in my head, I'm like, okay, let me show my abs. Therefore, they won't look at my boobs. So that was like an interesting, I felt as though if I took attention, you know, I, people comment on them. So great, great, great. Go ahead. Let's let them see that. And little by little certain outfits, uh, in, as I started having my career were lower and I did have a very, uh, sizable rack and it would be like, because I wouldn't show it very often when I did show it, you know, guys were like, whoa, like, I didn't know you had all that. Cause you're a rock chick, you know, like you, you don't show it much, but if you show it, bam, I'm, I'm in love with you. And I was always very self-conscious. So what I will say is the advantage of realizing people were looking at them and realizing I was uncomfortable. That's when I got a breast reduction. So all of that in a way, I have to say, was destiny. It was all destiny because in my breast reduction, I found breast cancer. Mm. So there you go with the, you know, turning the negative into a positive and finding that inner lining of instead of feeling like, like an object, my soul took it as, yeah, I think you, you know, you don't want to feel uncomfortable with this and you don't want to be an object and you want your back straight. My mom had her breast reduction. I'm outing my mother right now. She had her <laughs> breast reduction in her 60s. So her level of indentation was is there. It's prominent. And I didn't really want that. And so I think it was just like one of those things where, I, oh, I have, you know, Christmas off. Let me just, you know, take a couple of whatever ounces, whatever's in there. I don't know. Let's make Let's make a C out of another letter that's much higher. <laughs> well, I'm similar height as you. I'm five foot two on a good day. But I mean, I only could wish to have your babes. I was <laughs> See, this is the thing is that I only could have wished to have, you know, model size and stuff that you can maybe pad and make into boobs, but then you can always disappear. I could never disappear mine. So I felt as though, you know, I'd like to have the option of not always feeling like certain outfits would make me look bigger. And that's when I would show my waist to be like, well, I'm not as big. And that's where the crop top happened, where it's if I was wearing a bigger shirt, nobody knew that I was chiseled underneath, which was completely a fluke. Like I didn't do sit ups or anything. It was just part of my genetic code. You know, I just had those abs and God bless them for when they were there. <laughs> So unusually, although you'd had all this massive success around the world, the same success wasn't replicated in the US because you were seemingly blacklisted from US radio by some sort of beef Sony had with radio promotions. Yeah, I'm sure it was a Sony beef of some sort. I don't know what it is, so I don't claim to know. But to not get on radio in each album, they were really trying, hoping that 
the stigma or whatever was going on or whatever list I was on to piss off somebody else that I would get off that list. And at that time we weren't streaming. So radio was everything to happen in a country. So truthfully, it just never took off. And if it did take off, my life would have been very different. And I, I look at that and say my European life, AKA UK. Now that I say your Brexit people, um, that life would have been extremely limited. And I have to say in hindsight, I'm very glad that where uh, the universe focused my success was in a territory, and I say a territory meaning such a big territory that had such diversity, and I was really able to understand what our world is outside of America, and I'm grateful for that. I don't feel any negativity towards not being successful in America. In fact, now it would be overwhelming because how would I do it all at this age? <laughs> I don't know how Tina Turner did it. Um, but I think that it's one of those things that I'm okay with because I can come home and relatively move through America in a, in a pretty decent way. However, I do, I do get recognized on a cake, but not in a capacity that I would get recognized if I took a plane over water. <laughs> uh, before we leave the nostalgia zone, we just have to talk a little bit about your friendship with Elton John, because he's your, oh. he's your fairy godmother who took you under his wing yes. early on. And he had you perform at his one night only show in New York, just as your debut was being released. You sang at his white tie and tiara ball year after. I think I read somewhere that when you stay at his house, you stay in a room that has tiny porcelain kittens in it. <laughs> yes. You know, I think that, you know, he's quite, uh, he, he's always been forever in my, in my brain. And I think because we had so many records of him when I was a child next to the phonograph, I was mesmerized by him, his energy and his music as a young child. I felt like, you know, probably in, infected me in, a, in an interesting way. Then I had Barbara Streisand records and then I was in Chicago. So it was that, you know, a certain thing. I don't really know what influenced who I am and where, how I sing, but it definitely influenced. I want to say when I had to wear glasses and my mom told me at age six, seven, you know, you're going to need to wear glasses. I went, yes. And I like did the whole, like, you know, power pound and I was in love. And I immediately, thank God my grandfather was part of this eyeglass dental clinic because I got four pairs of glasses straight out the box <laughs> and they were little preppy frames and I got purple and clear and red. And my first glasses were purple too. There you go. Yes. When I was eight. Yeah. So you had an affinity to want to stand out. Well, no, I mean, I was just blind and I liked the color purple. No, and then... but that's okay. That's okay. You chose purple instead of like one that needs to blend in with your face. Like I was excited to wear glasses, not to mention that once you put them on, you're like, what? There are leaves on trees. <laughs> <laughs> People don't appreciate being able to wake up and see in the morning. I'm like, yeah. I was like, these objects up in the sky are actually trees, you know, not just on paper in a book, you know, <laughs> quite wild. Oh, my husband, um, just to digress, my husband, we um, went to Vegas with my husband in 2009, um, 
he instantly he proposed to me on that trip but he got oh. food poisoning oh. and really bad food poisoning and I had to go get him a bottle of water from a vending machine and I had these contact lenses with me that I had to soak overnight in peroxide for like eight hours so you couldn't put them back in and oh, I wow. forgot to bring my glasses with me on holiday so I went out to the vending machine. Vending machine was broken. I had to go to the floor underneath and I couldn't see anything. So I was like really close up trying to buy the bottle of water. And then I couldn't find my way back to the room because I couldn't see any of the door numbers. Oh my God. Oh, <laughs> it took me ages. I was there like hands on the doors, like looking right. up really close. Nope, this is not the next one. Yes. Go to the next one, go a few more. So they really, they don't really realize that, you know, I mean, and, and I do feel comfortable now people are so excited about using glasses in fashion, Yes, you know, so glasses are part of fashion. And if you need to wear glasses, then you, you can be bold and you can be exciting with the fact that you choose to wear glasses and not everybody gravitates as you towards, I'd love to wear a pair of glasses as part of me. Um, and that's okay as well, but it's just the the young kids that may have a, a certain level in their glasses that they can't wear a contact. I want them to know that it's, you're not, nothing's, nothing's wrong with that. You can embrace the fact that find a pair that you feel reflects you. And sometimes people don't know who they are yet. And so it helps to have somebody guide them or just not say, oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it does. It's like who you are. You're, you have to wear these glasses every day of your life. When I started wearing glasses, I didn't ever think of a tint. I would just wear different shapes, like most people, different angles and shapes. And around like 21 or 20, I was so over guys saying, you're just like the sexy librarian, you know, you're kind of like, and I was like, but am I though, or am I wearing glasses? <laughs> and so for me, I was kind of, you know, still in that artsy fartsy stage. And I was always very uh, interested in creating new things. So I, my first was an amber pair of glasses, maybe not as bold as these, but very similar to these. And they're the ones you see in I'm out of love. So that was my first pair. And then the second pair were the black pair, which that had the blue those were my choice. Those were on my face prior to being a person on TV. And then the glasses just became like, oh my God, I could get a glass for every outfit because you can afford them. But, you know, I always kind of had a couple of pair that could just be what I wanted to wear. Okay, it's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter oh. what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. Bye-bye. So after your first album, Not That Kind, you defied the cliche of the difficult second album and Freak of Nature was also a smash, spawning hit singles, Paid My G's and One Day in Your Life. And in 2003, as we were just talking a second ago, you decided you wanted to have a breast reduction and your doctor suggested a routine mammogram. And as you said, you discovered you had breast cancer. Yeah. And you were forced to deal with it in the worst possible way because two days after you were given the diagnosis while you were still coming to terms with it, before you'd even had a chance to tell friends and family, it was leaked to a newspaper and they contacted you saying, we're going to write this. Do you want to give us a statement? And you did to try and take back some control of the situation. But that must have been awful for you. First of all, I didn't even know that that do you want to make a statement was real. I thought that that was like part of a movie. I didn't know that they had press people. I mean, I had one, but I didn't know I had one, <laughs> you know, at that time in my life. That's how ignorant I was to what, how this big 
thing happened. I was like, is that real? Do people really make statements or do they just say, um, her, whatever they say, when they say that super line where her people are saying that she's the said quote, you know, and I will say I did get a lot of help with putting words together. I didn't put those words together. It sounded good when they put them together for me. So I will keep it real. I didn't know that I had words. I could imagine you even could find words at that time. Yeah, because I I didn't know if I would live or die at that point. It was just a diagnosis and it was, yes, we need to get it out there. We need to see how far uh, aggressive it is. And, and it was a spanner and I, I didn't have it in my family. So I was completely confused at why I got it. And then the more information I received getting knowledge of that 70% of women, it's not in your family. So my diagnosis wasn't rare. It just wasn't apparent to me as a woman that I could be more susceptible of getting breast cancer, not having a genetic link. And that moment I was like, and immediately I was like, how dare the health industry not give us that much information so that we, the women, can sit there and say, if I want to have an augmentation, if I want to do something, if I you know, want to have a baby, let me just make sure these are okay right now and keep, keep a, an eye on them so that in my life, I don't have this period of time that... I wait until my fifties or I wait until my forties or I wait until this lump happens where you know that that is not a stage one or below, you know? And so my, my passion in this journey was because I felt, I don't think anyone else knows this truth. And I, I really wanted to express that to people. So in hindsight, would I have waited a little bit longer and kind of just accepted it and, and gone public? No problem. Two days after getting the news, no, but it did spawn Elton and Sharon Osborne and many people that were in the industry to come out and be like, do you have a doctor? Do you have this? Do you have that? And it was really nice to get that kind of support from people that didn't necessarily know me in a way to like go into the family type of stuff, you know, Elton and I at that point were like, I was appreciating and he was, you know, you can come on stage with me, but I didn't know that he would be so like passionate about, are you okay? And that was when it really changed for me with realizing he really is just this person that, no one can be like him. He loves music in a passionate way, all different kinds of music. And he's a giver to like, just, he needs to make a change. He needs to change the world. And I love that about him. And I'm very happy that he's now a father and, you know, he's able to make that wonderful impact on two lovely boys who are going to emulate these two fathers that are just amazing. And they're reproducing these great energies in these boys. So, you know, when you see people that are amazing and you go, oh, yay, they're going to produce and make little Eltons and Davids, <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, he's just delicious. And, and there you go. It's, it just sort of was a wave I rode um, medically and, uh, it ended up being more of 
a conversation I was able to have when putting out an album, when doing a tour, when doing an interview that the breast cancer information would come up and that would give me an outlet to discuss the, the situation. And in looking back on it now, and obviously reading many fan letters and getting many, many people tell me that I found their cancer that they didn't know they had. And I, at first I'm like, uh, and they're like, no, thank you. There wasn't a reason for me to go. And you gave me a reason and I found it. And had I not given me that reason, I might've found it too late. You know? And I was like, wow, you know, that's like pretty huge of a, of the sacrifice I took just to be honest, helped people. And that was like, that was the best news ever. So it didn't take away anything for me. It actually just improved the reality. I, you know, kind of like whatever the, the breaking news that this magazine had, it's, I surpassed it beyond. So I just feel like I won in the end. I'm a big advocate of health comes first. Um, I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but I had a breast cancer scare in 2018 Mm -hmm. and that made me make a lot of life decisions. And one of those was that life's too short to be in a job I don't enjoy. Um, But I appreciate that as a singer who's just had two hit albums in quick succession, you're probably thinking, what is this going to do to my career? Because if you take time out, even just to have children as a woman, um, you can lose momentum. Was your record company supportive? You started writing your third album during treatment. Oh, yeah. They were very supportive. In fact, they didn't need me to necessarily write, but I felt like I needed to not be in the head. So I wanted to write. I did find it was, and it ended up being very difficult to write while in radiation because you get a little brain fog. They would say the word, you would get tired. And I was like, oh, thank God, I'm never tired. You know, so I was very happy about that side effect until I realized that the tired was you're just not that you may not remember what you just said or that kind of thing a little bit foggy and so while writing music I'm like oh my god I have don't remember yeah like you know you have all these great lyric ideas and a segue and you're like nope gone so it was a little hard and I did have to take a little break but the beauty of what that album created was in a way it, it created Anastasia it was the Anastasia album. I really knew myself at that point. I had had a challenge in life that I didn't think I'd have because I already was, I already am a survivor. I've had Crohn's disease since I was 12 and a resection. And I constantly will always be someone that could go and flare up and could be very ill. And so I was used to that. I just, there was, this was on a different level And it was in a time when I was like, just happening. And I'm like, really, is that it? I'm, I thought I was going to go down and like, you know, I don't know, something like really rock star-ish. Not that I was ever a drug person or anything, but I was like something like bold and rah, you know, she, eh, she died of cancer. Like, I didn't feel like that was where my picture in my mind ended, but I think that I just... I just sort of just went with it and allowed myself to take that journey without judgment and without uh, stress. And also being a Crohn's patient, you realize stress is 
part of your body and the less stress you have. Uh, so in that way, I did kind of take a little bit more control of not really making life have to be that way. And maybe I can make some changes and maybe I can do some stuff. And I did change a little bit of the music and me kind of came out a little bit more. The rock part of me, the edgier part, and all of these interesting songs came from that period of time as well. So you launched yourself back into work pretty soon after. You had the most successful solo European tour of 2004 and five. then released the Greatest Hits album, took a bit of a break and worked on a fashion line, released another two albums. And then in 2013, your health scuppered you again and you were diagnosed with breast cancer for a second time. And this time you decided to have a double mastectomy. And it was quite a long journey for you before you felt kind of feminine and sexy again. But it was you participating in Strictly Come Dancing or Dancing with the Stars, as it's known around the world, yes. um, that helped you get you across that line. I think that I just needed to find the inner female and you kind of think, well, dancing brings that out. So as much as it's not my go-to, I have rhythm, I have no dance training. I didn't realize how hard the show would be, yet... I was very excited about it trying to bring out something in me that the surgery, when you take away that nerve ending in your body, the, the breast area, when that is uh, a full mastectomy, you don't have sensories around there. So there's, it's kind of like losing feeling in your foot and there's no longer the feeling in your foot or losing feeling in your hand forever. And your hand is not there, amputated, it's gone. But you feel like they should be there. And then when you make them be there, you're kind of like, hmm, but it's there, but it's not. <laughs> yeah, no, didn't, you know, I mean, I wore, I was so excited on a different reason to be able to wear like a top that was a crop top. But I didn't realize that I wouldn't feel if one side went down or not. <laughs> Thank God I was in my house when I saw the mirror and I'm like, yeah, there he is. You're just one hanging out, you know, one being like, hi, you know, just <laughs> hanging out with all the world to see. And I was like, oh no, we shouldn't wear a crop top. That's not a wise thing. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, hi, can I have a cappuccino? And, you know, just breasts all out. So it was not necessarily the, uh, I realized that not feeling doesn't mean that you can go overboard and act like you're normal, but I did appreciate having the costumes and the makeup and the hair and all of that on steroids, like as a female, that really was the ultimate. It wasn't necessarily learning the dancing. It was somebody just making me feel pretty every day and every week you would do something else. And it just getting swept up in that. And the, the way they would make you feel when you would dance for this minute and a half, and it would be an experience and a, and a, a minute and a half, like movie, you, you felt special and it was so wonderful along with it's not so wonderful things, but it really did at the end of it, make me feel like I owned that again. And then it was nice. Then I was able to accept that all of these things on my body are part of me, but that was what, three years into the journey of the mastectomy. So it's not overnight. And I don't ever tell women that when you think it's overnight, because you assume that because I'm back at work or whatever, that life is easy. And it's, I just don't need to talk about it. 
in the midst of work, but uh, strictly made me be able to talk about it to women to say, you know, it takes a while and you do have to search for that inner you um, in a different way than most women have to search for it. I find it really interesting that the times when you've been at the top of your career have also been the times when you've been the sickest, whether that's cancer or Crohn's disease flare-ups or the heart problems you have. And you, I mean, you do spend time in between tours and albums having surgeries as well, but um, <laughs> pretty much is. <laughs> many people would get beaten down by health, but you keep getting back up. And I heard you say somewhere that the pull to being happy for you was much stronger than the pull to being sad. And I was just wondering where that came from. That, I wish I could bottle that. I don't know where it comes from because I don't like the pull of being sad. I know I have to be, I know things happen. I know I have these feelings, but the feelings are never really conducive to what my ultimate is just to have a good life and be happy and make people laugh and, and have them feel wonderful. And I can't do that if I am in the zone of, and so instead of just pretending it doesn't exist, I talk about it. And when talking about it, it takes away that power that whatever it is you're dealing with, a divorce, health, work, you take away the power because you're no longer keeping it inside. Sharing your emotions are really powerful. Words matter. And when our inner dialogue is having a whole different dialogue than our human dialogue, you're really fighting against being attached to yourself. So what I enjoyed throughout my career is that I've always still been the same person. I always started out as Anastasia and, and I continued to be, I got older, but I'm, if I look back and I go into my first ever tour, you know, I, at the end of the tour, I said, make a difference. I was just like, you know, no war, no. And it, I'm like, wow, you know, even back then I knew that's nice to know that I haven't changed so much and that the ultimate of who I started with is kind of the core of me. And yes, I've grown up, but yeah, I'm kind of proud that even when I thought that I was nothing in my head, that message, still there was somebody in there going, no, nope, no, nope, you're not just nothing. And that little, that little engine that could is something that I genetically, I think was more my speed. You know, I, at this moment, I think of who we just lost, which is Olivia Newton-John. And she is someone that I always admired in her strength and her, her genuine quality of giving that was beyond. I just felt like sometimes she was subhuman. She was like an angel on earth. And I, I look at that and, and say, where did she get that? And I don't know. And I don't know that she really knows. It's just, she would rather do that that way, no matter what she goes through, than do it in a way that that ruins everything. And I'm not saying that I haven't had my battles and trying to do something in a very busy time, in a very health crisis time that maybe not didn't work out to my liking. But overall, I am responsible for all that has happened in my life as an adult. And 
if you are responsible for things and you feel like you want to do them differently in your next moment, in your next journey, in your next day, you can choose that or you can continue doing something you may have been like, hmm, probably would have done that differently. And so you have an opportunity to do it differently in your life. And that is what I think I constantly do is I want to do it differently. I don't want to be stuck. I don't want to give in. I don't want to let it get me down. And that is always the push to get past it. And now you're on the upward swing again. In 2019, you made your musical debut in We Will Rock You in the Netherlands. Last year, you won the Mars Singer in Australia. <laughs> and earlier this year, you put out a song which was the theme to Jonathan Rhys Meyers' film American Night, which you also had a cameo in. Uh, but I also heard you say you weren't sure if you were going to make another album because you didn't want to put music out that no one was going to listen to, which I completely appreciate in an ageist music industry, especially against women, which stifles creativity. It must be incredibly demotivating. You know, I think that statement, and it's so interesting, they latched onto it. And, and I think when you don't take the other perspective of why I said I may not make a whole album was what I noticed is that we're single driven right now. Mm. So it had nothing to do with the extra stuff around not making an album. It actually had to do with why do I need to make a whole album? Why can't I just put out singles? It's pressure to make a whole album. So I think that to me, I'm trying to live my life easier. Why can't we just put out a single here and there and then eventually make an album? You know, like the whole album is. So that's really what I meant is like, maybe I'll be like the youngsters in a way of taking a page out of their book, which is we have a couple of singles. And if what it does is it sparks interest for an album, great. But my career doesn't need that to be a career. So do I have to make a whole album? Because people really want to hear the hits and I have a lot of them. So in a tour, what am I going to do half of the new album? It's, I mean, that's cute and all, but I think a lot of people that pay a ticket these days want to hear a lot of their favorite songs. And sometimes that's not easy to do if you have more to choose from. And I've kind of noticed that in other artists but people do like new music. So yes, I put it out. Yes, I do that. Maybe the whole album will happen. I have songs, but we're still trying to figure out whether it's an album or whether it's a single. We have songs, plural, and still trying to figure out whether we put out the single before the tour or during the tour or next year or because really it's, we already have a tour. Like we're not, using it to sell a tour. So speaking of the tour, because <laughs> you've been a big reveal. Well, it's not really a reveal. If you're a fan, you've known about this since last November, but very exciting. You have a new UK and Europe tour. I do. Which starts next month. Um, the I'm at a lockdown tour, 40 dates celebrating your 22nd anniversary in the business. And on the one hand, you must be super excited to be performing again, especially after lockdown. But on the other hand, is there a bit of you thinking, Mm, it's been four years since the last tour. Is my voice going to cope being exercised this frequently again? Are my knees going to hold out? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Am I going mean, to get I, sick of the tour bus? Well, you know, I mean, I just got a shot of cortisone in my in the ball of my foot because I was starting to get into heels again. And I was like, oh, God, you know. So, yes, a long period of time with that at a certain period of time is every year going in a different direction now. Um, yes, I will be honest and say the fear of 
going back and doing three in a row again after such a long period of time off and singing 20 songs a night and live. Let's just keep it real, people. Sometimes you don't know, but I sing live and I appreciate the fact that other people choose to do differently, but I choose to sing live, therefore putting more pressure on the level of accuracy my voice has to sustain. But I thought we were supposed to do this uh, tour in 2020, which would have been my 20th anniversary. And we didn't have a title for it at that point, but it was just 2020, you know, and it was my 20th anniversary. So cool. And then it got canceled. And then we tried to rebook it twice in 2021 and thought about maybe trying at the beginning of this year. And so then we locked it in for what we have now, which is in the fall, September, we're starting it up. And when coming up with the name, it was kind of obvious to me that I'm finally out of lockdown and how out of love is being celebrated out of lockdown. And I just was like, well, that's totally the tour name. <laughs> I was like, hello. And I like to make people laugh. I've never had a title of a tour that was, you know, tongue in cheek. And so I really just loved the essence of I'm out of lockdown being the tour name and also that we were supposed to do the 20 and then you cross it out like, you know, like in school and then put 2022. If you see the poster, it's really like, it makes you know that you're going to come and have a nice time. You know, this isn't, this isn't a, you may cry, you may have emotions because the songs bring that, but really we just want to have a good time. We want to do it together. So that sort of is just what I'd like to share with people on this tour is this is the first time you're seeing me perform after the pandemic in this way. We're all going to share it together. This will be the only time we share that moment together. All of us have gone through a pandemic. It's not just me going through cancer and then performing for you. It's all of us went through stuff. So we're all going to be processing this live concert together in each place that each one of us will have that opportunity to have a different moment with each other. And I'm really excited about that because it makes me feel like the beginning. It makes me feel like I'm getting an opportunity of starting over with this perspective of, I didn't know how to deal with all the new stuff, but now I understand that everyone's going through this visceral, like, everything's brand new and we're kind of freaked out and we're kind of tweaked out. And some people are going to wear masks and gloves and condoms all over their body. And, (laughs) you know, we are embracing each other's journey in this. And I, I'm just very, very honored to still be allowed to do what I do and people want to come and see it. And, you know, the UK has been a strong supporter of my career for a very long time. And I just, I'm very honored that I have so many dates in the UK saying nothing but positive and also speaking the same language. I really can keep it very raw and real. And we have a very sense of humor in your country as I do in my life. So, you know, it really is like, you know, like a little side saddle of this and that. It's very fun to be able to be me on stage in the UK. I saw two interviews with you, one from back in 2000 and another one about a decade later where you were asked the same question 
and you gave the same answer. Oh. And the question was, when did you first realise you'd made it? And you said you didn't think you had made it yet. So 22 years on, 30 million record sales, six top 10 albums in the UK alone, over 40 music awards, including a humanitarian award for your charitable efforts and raising awareness of breast cancer. Have you made it now? I've made a mark. I, I don't, I don't want to think I've made it because I'm not done, but I think I've, I've now seen the mark I've made. I've now been able to have perspective of when I talk about who I've worked with in my life, I still can't believe that it's true. You know, I look back at pictures, I look back at products I've done and I'm like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful. Like if that's what I do and have that, and I work off of that, like, that's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. So I, I really want to take the pressure off me to go. There's so many wonderful artists out there that want to make their part and, and love to make their, their impact. And, and I think that's great. I do feel like I have definitely put my mark out there that if tomorrow was the end, I wouldn't be ashamed of what I've done. I wouldn't feel why now? Like I really do have a, a really happy feeling inside me but I don't want it to be over. I'm, I'm not looking for retirement, but I do have a different perspective in this anniversary tour because it really does feel like a different accomplishment. And even when Sony wanted to bring out a greatest hits, like six years after I started, I was like, am I over? Like what? A cup of what? I don't even understand what the greatest hits are. This three years, I thought it was like 15 years and 20 years but it's just another way of making money. And I get that, but it felt like that was too soon. I wasn't ready to get that accolade of greatest hits. Are you kidding me? That's like, no, let's see if they last like, and they have. And so I will say, yes, I do have songs that are continually played. So I have to admit to myself and take away the negative Nancy in my head and say, your songs themselves are saying you've made your mark and you can continue doing that. You can continue helping and guiding and performing, but you can also let go of the anxiety of, was it good enough? Did I do enough? Am I enough? Like I think that I've hit that place in my life that that kind of dialogue doesn't help serve a purpose in what I'd like to be doing now which is just loving life and living it and helping guide young kids to not have that permeate in their brain as much as other people helped me through. Don't stop here just because cancer, don't let that, you know, like really positive people around me helped as well. Having great people to help you through a a dark time is really important. Is that your mom or your sister making lunch? That's my mom making noise. (laughs) Mom. Oh, it is Sean. Okay, sorry. Take it back. It's not your mum. Making coffee. <laughs> sorry. It's all right. Life still continues on during these interviews. It's fine. It does. It does. Um, so last question. Do you still have Doritos on your rider in your contracts while on tour? Or has the love affair died down now? 
Well, yeah. And I think that's also a, a lifestyle change for me in the second cancer that I was like, okay, girl, you can't live off Diet Coke and Doritos. Like you might have helped yourself right there. Um, so yes, it's no longer um, part of a rider. In fact, my rider is water and uh, fruit not cut up, but an apple and a banana, everything that's sort of like I can eat when I want to eat and hummus, but covered in a tin, you know, maybe some vegetables so that if I need to grab and go, I can grab and go. It's very, very doable in every country. Kimmy, I can imagine if Doritos aren't available in that country back in the day. They're always available. <laughs> They're available everywhere. They are the McDonald's of the world's. Doritos are everywhere, just in case you didn't know. Do you not succumb occasionally still to them, though? Um, yes, I'm not going to say that I haven't had them. But I really do feel like, I don't know, it was like such a need. Like, I had them every day. I'm not going to, you know, bad talk Doritos, but, I mean, they can live on forever. <laughs> like a French fry <laughs> from McDonald's. So, mm. so like when the apocalypse happens, there'll be bags of Doritos. Yeah, there'll be bags of Doritos. You can let, definitely, if there's some stuff going down, if you got to stay in the house for a while and you put that in a Ziploc bag, they will taste just as good. <laughs> <laughs> then they're done that, you know. Anastasia, it's been so lovely speaking with you. We could chat for another hour because we barely scratched the surface really, about your you life. So and I think you're thank really you. inspirational to a lot of women because you're so open about your experience and positive. Oh, thank you. But thanks so much and best of luck with the talk. Thank you. Huge thanks again to Anastasia for joining me. Her I'm at a lockdown tour begins on the 15th of September in Lisbon and then will stop all around Europe before a dozen shows in the UK late October and November. You can see all the dates and info at anastasia.com. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you'd like to support the show, please visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate. But the biggest way you can help is by just not keeping the podcast to yourself. Please share it with a friend or on social media so that others can discover and enjoy it too. And of course, if you could please hit that follow button on your podcast player, Twitter or Instagram, leave a rating or a nice review. That would really, really help me out. And don't be afraid to say hello, drop me a message on socials and we can have a chat. Until next time, thanks for listening.